Whatever tensions are there between the president and the intelligence community, frankly, I think the intelligence community sets that aside. You know, you don't get up in the morning and say, I'm really irritated with the president. You get up in the morning and say, how do I do my job in a way that helps him? It's Aspen Ideas to go. I'm Trisha Johnson. John McLaughlin is a 30-year veteran of the CIA. He's the agency's former acting director. On today's show, he sits down with other members of the intelligence community to discuss its relationship with President Trump. Aspen Ideas To Go is a weekly show that features compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other events presented by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. In the first weeks of his presidency, Trump made combative remarks about the intelligence community. In a tweet, he accused agencies like the NSA and FBI of leaking information to the press. Then he invoked Nazi Germany in a tweet accusing the intel community of leaking what he called fake news to the public. The tweet was in reference to an unsubstantiated intelligence dossier that made damaging allegations against him. Are Trump's statements undermining the credibility of the intelligence community? If so, will the agencies be less effective in making decisions around national security? How damaging are impulsive statements to liaison relationships agency officials have cultivated? And how do you best communicate intelligence information to a new president? Today's panel includes John McLaughlin, Juan Zarate, who served as President George W. Bush's Deputy National Security Advisor for Counterterrorism, and Michael Hayden. Hayden led the CIA and NSA. He also wrote a recent column in the New York Times titled, Donald Trump is Undermining Intelligence Gathering. The conversation is led by David Ignatius of The Washington Post. Here's Ignatius. Just to kind of uh, give us uh, the flavor of this topic and remind us that there's some real issues here that we need to, to talk about, I'm just going to read a few tweets, a few little kind of snapshots from recent history. Um, like a, a tweet uh, from January 11, 2017, which was uh, just after a presentation of intelligence findings uh, about President Trump, intelligence, I should say, intelligence findings about Russian covert action, uh, raising the, the question of uh, whether the Russians acted to benefit uh, the Trump campaign. And he responded, intelligence agencies should never have allowed this fake news He's referring here to the dossier by Chris Steele that was compiled. This fake news to leak into the public. One last shot at me. Are we living in Nazi Germany? I think that was one that people felt especially concerned about. One on January 15, again, as investigation of Russian activities was coming more to the fore. The quote, intelligence briefing on so-called Russian hacking was delayed until Friday. Perhaps more time needed to build a case. Very strange. About that, the intelligence chiefs made a mistake here, and when people make mistakes, they should apologize. Media should also apologize. I could go on, but I think you're all familiar with the tone of these tweets, very combative. I would say next to the news media, uh, which in this same period was characterized by the president, president-elect as the opposition, uh, the intelligence community was a principled target of uh, criticism from him. 
So I, I want to begin our conversation uh, by asking each of our panelists to say briefly how much damage do you think has been done by these sometimes inflammatory comments? And by that I mean both to uh, morale within the intelligence community uh, and to the intelligence community's standing at home and abroad. Uh, and uh, Mike, let me ask sure. you to start, and then we'll go down the go down the road. Yeah, and I know we'll drill down on these specifics, so I'll be, I'll be very brief. I mean, it is substantial damage. I would not call it irrecoverable yet. I, I think a repeat of this cycle would, would actually, you know, we'd be running out of altitude and airspeed, and the trees in the house is getting bigger in the windscreen, all right, <laughs> going, going down. Um, but so far, we, we've still got altitude and airspeed to, to correct, uh, but it did do serious damage uh, within the community to the morale within the community, and, and frankly, the attempt to delegitimize those with whom you disagree, be it court, or <coughs> press, or science, or intelligence, was an unmistakable characteristic of this period. And if it were to continue, I do think we'd have that very, very dark scenario. We'll see if we can pull the nose up and get the level flight again. So, John... Uh what do you think, and also what do, what do you hear about about the degree of morale problems uh, in the IC and how people have, have responded to this period? Mm. Well, I, I agree with uh, Mike's assessment. Uh, I would say um, I see four phases here, and we're in phase three. I'll let you all decide exactly how to label these phases, but the four phases I see are from the time of the election, Phase one would be a period of, let's say, total ignorance about intelligence, along with a lot of other things, by the way. Um, a person spectacularly unprepared to be president, certainly when it came to intelligence. Phase two would be a period that those tweets came from, a period that I would call a phase of hostility uh, as facts put forward by intelligence came up against preconceptions or what I've heard Mike describe as faith-based uh, beliefs rather than factually-based beliefs. And those tweets come from that period. Phase three, I think, is uh, where we are now, and it's the phase where intelligence has become unavoidable. In other words, as North Korea is in your face, as um, chemical weapons are deployed in Syria, as you have to have your Secretary of State meet with Russia, uh, someone has to, you have to turn to intelligence, particularly when your State Department is not well-staffed, uh, to find out, well, what happened in Syria? Uh, how many nuclear weapons does North Korea have? That's going to come from intelligence. And this is coinciding, I think, with, um, in phase three, the traction that some of the more experienced professional people in the administration seemed to be getting. H.R. McMaster, General Mattis, uh, the CIA director, I might add. And um, phase four, we're not in yet. Phase four could be once we have the results of these three investigations that are underway in the two intelligence committees and the FBI. We don't know what they'll produce, but they could produce something startling, interesting, that will throw this thing to use General Hayden's analogy, you know, kind of going back toward the trees. Uh, but at this point, 
to David's last remark, I would say morale in the community, as I hear about it, is not so bad. Uh, the President Trump is getting a briefing every day. Uh, I hear that's going reasonably well. I hear the CIA director goes most days. And uh, there is an interchange that's starting to acquire elements of normalcy. And we'll see where we go from here. One. How do you read things? Well, first of all, David, I, I could listen to these two all day, and I think I'd like to. Uh, but let me just piggyback off of John's uh, framework, because I think I worry much less about morale, because I think morale is handled by proper leadership. You're seeing that certainly with Mike Pompeo at the CIA. Uh, focus on mission and then exposure to the leadership, and I think that's happening. And I think morale, in some ways, can recover pretty quickly, uh, unless there are repeat episodes and offenses, that kind of thing. But I worry less about morale. Um, I think what we've seen is a maturation. We've seen a maturation of personnel, maturation of policy, maturation of awareness to get us to stage three that John described. What I really worry about uh, are two things. Um, One is the potential for undermining credibility in the intelligence community and the analysis that comes out of it at a time of great cynicism, uh, both domestically in the post-Snowden era uh, and also at a time when intelligence it serves as evidence with our diplomacy, with national security decision-making. Uh, Mike Hayden uses a phrase in, in some of the works that he's done. Uh, the role of, uh, of intelligence is really to enable action in the face of doubt. Well, if you're creating additional doubt or misperception about your own community and its work, that disables your ability to do things. And I think this recent episode with Syria is a a good example. You need the intelligence to then demonstrate the legitimacy of your action. Um, And it's going to be uh, rebutted by the autocrats, the tyrants, who use the obfuscation of evidence, uh, the the demands for more proof, as a way of driving their own legitimacy or evading responsibility. So that, to me, is the most long-term potential damaging uh, dimension of this. And then a related, related problem, and you saw this a little bit with the dust-up with the British, when there was accusations that the GCHQ, the, the British NSA, uh, was involved in, in wiretapping the Trump Tower. I think the moment you begin to implicate uh, foreign intelligence services with whom the U.S. has very strong and important relationships, and those relationships serve as a basis for trust uh, between countries, that is really dangerous as well. And so I don't worry about morale. I don't worry about the maturation. I think all that's happening. And to Mike's point, I think the fact that you have serious people grappling with very hard problems that requires intelligence is going to force that maturation. I worry about statements or actions that undermine the long-term legitimacy of the IC that then disables our ability to be effective in our national security decision-making. Yes, please. Because I think that's a, a really valuable point. Because uh, you asked and I answered the question fundamentally based upon the direct assaults on the on the intelligence community. But I think the long-term danger is what Juan just suggested, which is the collateral damage to the intelligence community with the president pursuing one or another agenda, and the GCHQ fallout is a classic. But if you look at the whole, what do we want to call it? Susan Rice unmasking whatever thing, which they won't let go, all right? And it's not about intelligence, it's about politics. 
you know, about which they will not let go. That, that, that has potential really serious long-term crippling of the American intelligence community. Something that was clear to me in government, really clear to me out of government, is, is that American espionage rests a bit uneasily inside American culture because American espionage represents power and secrecy, which, of course, makes anyone American-valued uh, uncomfortable with the concept. But we're okay. Mm-hmm. We, we get by because we are, we are viewed that we would never be asked, nor would we be allowed, would we allow ourselves to be used for political purposes. And therefore, even though it's an uneasy relationship, we continue to function. You just had the president say, we were used for political purposes. And boy, that can be incredibly corrosive, let alone the nasty tweets about who do you believe in all. And just let me add one small, short point to that, Uh, what Juan said and what uh, Mike just said. I think the GCHQ comment, that the implication that they were involved in bugging the president, was so ill-advised and so easily avoided. If he had just picked up the phone or literally walked a few feet down the hall and asked someone like H.R. McMaster, could it be he would instantly have been told, of course not. I was in the UK when that happened. I've never seen the British angrier. Um, and they conceal that pretty well sometimes. But they did, they did not on this occasion. My point here is, if that sort of thing stops, we'll know we've turned a corner. But if it continues, that is, impulsive statements like that, without checking with someone who could correct it, then then we haven't turned a corner. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. On the show today, former intelligence community officials discuss the current relationship between the Trump White House and agencies like the CIA. John McLaughlin is a 30-year veteran of the CIA and Michael Hayden led both the CIA and the NSA. Juan Zarate worked in national security under President George W. Bush. David Ignatius is moderating the conversation. He's a columnist and associate editor of the Washington Post. The discussion was held by the Homeland Security Program at the Aspen Institute. Now, back to the conversation. Mike, let me begin begin with you. Whether you think there is lasting damage to liaison relationships, CIA is the world's biggest, uh, presumably world's best intelligence organization, but it it, it needs help from its partners. Yeah. And uh, you keep hearing uh, reports, three of you would be in a better position to hear them than I, that, that people are just getting a little weary. What about that? So, so a, a couple of things. Number one, to reinforce your point, liaison relationships are very, very important to, to American intelligence. We spend a lot of time on liaison relationships. And, and, and the secret sauce is our institutions are big, global, relatively rich, and technologically talented. The other guys are small, focused, linguistically and culturally agile. Boy, it, it works really very, very well. And so turbulence here domestically with regard to the standing legitimacy 
confidence you have in American intelligence begins to affect. Now, now again, uh, so far, not so good. So far, that's got to put people on edge. We've seen it with the British explicitly. I think we would see it implicitly with others. All that said, if, 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 if the worst is behind us, this is very manageable because in that relationship, which I said is really important to us, it's really important to them. They really are dependent upon us. So they're willing to give us a little space, willing to offer a, a bit of forgiveness, live with a little bit of discomfort, but there are limits beyond which, particularly our, our Western democracy partners, really can't allow themselves to go. John, what did you say to, to your British friends uh, after this really quite egregious uh, statement about uh, GCHQ, which, which led them to do a most unusual thing, issue a public mm-hmm. statement. Well, what did you tell them? Uh, same thing I did with the Australians. <laughs> Remember that event? Others? Not yet. Seriously, I think the first thing you do is you say, on, on behalf of our country, I apologize for that statement. And at the same time, I said... Uh, let me, um, I've said this to a lot of international contexts, let me give you some assurance that we have self-correcting mechanisms in the United States that uh, we'll figure this out. Uh, a little bit of what Mike just said about the enduring partnership. I mean, after all, we learned a lot of what we know and do in the intelligence field from the British. It was essentially that. I would say we, we, will, we have self-correcting mechanisms and they are kicking in now. I think we are seeing some of them kick in. I, I, I just need to add, because John mentioned Is that about right? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's spot on. But I have had observers, not members of government, but, but keen observers of this stuff in two Five Eye partners approach me personally and simply say, we're okay, right? Yeah. yeah. Five Eyes. Yeah. And what was your answer? Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. We're okay. Yeah. No, this is enduring. Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. And, it's, and it's important for them to hear these voices, yeah. actually. Yeah. And, yeah. and frankly, the voices of credibility from the outside yeah. of John and Mike actually reinforces that. Because I think, again, those relationships are enduring. Uh, they've survived diplomatic uh, dust ups and, and problems. We saw during the Iraq War period, 03, the intelligence relationships survived. The CT relationships were strong. Uh, even with the French and the Germans at the the height of some of these uh, problems. I think the real danger, David, to your question is, do these services begin to um, not only feel that they're not valued, but do they begin to see that the U.S. is beginning to politicize intelligence, to Mike's earlier point? And I think if they begin to see that intelligence becomes a plaything in our political theater, that then really does begin to undermine confidence. And then it begins to affect operationally. Mm-hmm. Because what are they willing to share? What yeah, are the limitations? That's a good point. Um, you know, we saw this a little bit in the in the Guantanamo context, right? Mm-hmm. Where uh, when the Western European countries were concerned about use of intelligence and um, and it was uncomfortable for them uh, for for legal purposes and and for political purposes, they began to put limits on sharing of information, began to put limits on extradition, they began to constrain how they would cooperate, and so. I think you've got to be very careful to tend to these things because it ultimately has operational impact on what information we actually get and what operations we can then coordinate. So John, John's point about the system kicking in, uh, I must tell you, it was an emotional moment for me, like two or three weeks ago, when you had the head of the federal police force, 
director of the FBI, and the head of the largest intelligence organization in the country, Mike Rogers, head of NSA, in open session, answer a question about the accuracy of a statement made by the chief executive of the United States and the commander-in-chief, and they answered it in open session, and answered it loyally, politely, respectfully, and truthfully. That, that is a remarkable moment for the non-politicization. Mm-hmm. And, and we, heaven forbid we need a whole bunch more moments like that, but I'm, I'm counting on the folks still in government. They've got to stand tall. That that hearing was a, was a good moment. It was it was followed by some not so good moments. Uh, the, but let, let me a, uh, ask you to go to what I would think of as the heart of this question that that, uh, that we're exploring, which is the relationship of this president, uh, as inexperienced as I, any president in my lifetime, maybe in, in our history for. Uh, dealing with foreign policy just doesn't have uh, much background. Dealers of this president with the intelligence community, you each have sat in the Oval Office in the Situation Room often, and you know what it is to brief presidents. You know presidents' needs for intelligence. You know that each president is a different consumer and and is going to consume in different ways. So I just ask you how you would uh, tackle this a puzzle of, of, of how to make intelligence useful to this president, not somebody we, we might hypothesize, but this man. Uh, Mike, you want to start that? Sure. Um, first of all, David's right. The premise is we adjust every four or eight years. And, and you've got to learn the new client. You've got to learn not just policies and interests, <laughs> which kind of set priorities, but personality. How does this human being absorb new information? I think John will agree, and he'll probably have a lot more color on this than I do. President Bush learned in the dialogue. He read. Okay, he really was. He did his homework, but he learned in the dialogue. President Obama learned in reflection. He, he learned in, in the quiet moment. Uh, I don't know about President Trump. All right. I mean, it, it, the stories out there is not a lot of patience. Doesn't do a lot of reading. Doesn't like to sit still for briefings. And, and, and so. I'm kind of spitballing here, David, just, you know, what are the options? And, and maybe the way to get into President Trump's head is to talk to the vice president. Maybe the way to get into President Trump's head is make yourself invaluable to the national security advisor. And, and so that when you get that small circle where well, you may not be there, and the last person in the room might be the vice president, he, he turns to the vice president and, and, he, and you get, look, um, Zbigniew Brzezinski did that when he was National Security Advisor. The President did not take briefings, but the National Security Advisor kind of mixed the salad in the morning with all the inputs and then went in. That's not an ideal world. I wouldn't opt for that, but we've got to deal with the President as he is. Just to interject uh, and then turn to, to John and, and Juan, um, I think one thing we've learned from our experience with this President is that attempts to, to end run him he, he's, he wants to be the star in his White House. Yeah. There's, there's no other star. If you're Steve Bannon and you get to be a star, uneasy um, lies the head. I mean, watch, <laughs> here comes the cleaver. Uh, so the, the idea that you'd, that you'd go around him to get the intelligence, for what it's worth, my sense is that um, the briefers are figuring out ways to engage this personality in its 
Forgive me if I, if I made the impression this was this was an end run. All right, it, it, it was simply take it's like NFL football. Take what the defense mm -hmm. offers when you go to the mm -hmm. line of scrimmage. The president is going to give you a limited period of time. The vice president is a bit more religious about taking that briefing six days a week. So make sure he gets the full dose. The same with with McMaster. The same with Madison. So on. John, you probably have. In 30 years, uh, and it must be many presidents that you that you briefed, so you you know a lot about this. How, how would you think about ways to brief, inform, connect with uh, this this president? Yeah, well, I, I was Clinton's first briefer, and I briefed, of course, all during the uh, George W. Bush era, and uh, I briefed Bush 41 on occasion, and briefed uh, Ronald Reagan after he left office. So let me start with the last one. When I went to brief Ronald Reagan, uh, people who knew him said, have some jokes. <laughs> no, and, and they meant it seriously. In other words, they didn't, uh, I found him to be actually very focused, very smart, very interested, but he had a sense of humor. And so I could tell you the corny jokes I told him about uh, <laughs> Poland and Germany, which were the subjects. Uh, <laughs> Probably offending all of the polls in the room. Here. No, no, don't, don't do it. Don't. Okay. But anyway, with Trump, if I were knowing what I know and what we see, my initial thought would be, uh, to reinforce Mike's point, this is probably a man who absorbs information orally. Uh, so I would focus on uh, very short articles to give him, no more than one page, a lot of white space, a lot of bullets, more than 140 characters, <laughs> but not a lot of clutter. I would use a lot of graphics, figuring a businessman probably is used to looking at charts and graphs. And, um, and I would try to encourage him to challenge us. One of the things that um, sure Mike agrees with uh, that people don't realize about intelligence is it isn't delivered from Mount Olympus. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it is incrementally acquired in an atmosphere where decision and conclusion is constantly demanded. And so there's a lot you don't know. And the dialogue with the president is, in a way, the most important thing. It's when the president asks a question and you have to say, I don't know exactly. Let me get back to you. That's not a bad moment. Uh, and it begins to instruct the president about what intelligence is. And if you do know, you know. So I think I'd approach it that way and see how it worked. One, I, I think, you know, part of this is just conceiving of information differently. You know, we're, we're deep into the 21st century now, and I think yeah. this is also a president who apparently likes to watch, I don't know, but apparently likes watch to TV. watch cable TV. And so I would think about, and I think this has been borne out of the Syrian ex exercise based on news reports, that a lot of this was visual. Um, and, you know, thinking about the PDB through visual terms. Uh, maybe it's video clips that are, you know, we see all the think tanks do it now, right? The two and a half minute, three minute video that gives the expose on a complicated topic. Uh, and maybe you give him a 500 word synopsis of what the, the general issues are, and then you play the video. I don't see any problem with that, as long as you've got a dialogue and you also have an informed staff that he's listening to, ready to, to fill in the gaps exactly. and play yeah. in the gray. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so I think that's important. Actually, um, I, I kind of like the idea of CIA TV. 
Yeah, why not? Why not? I mean, we, used well, to have, we had an Air Force right. once. Yeah. Well, you know? in, in the, in the, from the Bush to the Obama team, you know, we had, we had started to see this at the end of the Bush administration, but the use of iPads, the use of, yeah. you know, links to go to videos and things, and, and it was a little clunkier. I think it got better over time, but why work. not Why not take a full leap forward? Mm-hmm. And, and it probably w- would resonate more with them. Um, obviously, I think it did in the Syrian context. Um, the other thing I would say is, he obviously listens to some key vo- voices, and I think we get too fixated on the idea of a briefing at the moment. And he seems to be, uh, again, from the outside, I, I, I don't know uh, the president, but from the outside, he seems to be somebody who, uh, over time, will evolve his positions based on information uh, provided. And I think that means making sure Secretary Mattis is fully up to speed, and so that the next time he has a conversation with the president in the yep. Oval, on Syria or North Korea, he's up to speed on the what we know and what we don't know. Um, H.R. McMaster, Mike Pompeo, same thing. So he's going to get information, maybe not in the one-hour block of time, but in different ways. And I think the intel community has to adapt to that and enable those around the president uh, to whom he's listening. You know, there's, there's an, uh, uh, kind of a greater-than-the-sum-of-the-parts issue in what the three of us have just said that suddenly occurs to me. And that is that uh, you've heard all three of us emphasize the intelligence community will bend over backwards to figure out how to serve a president. Even though we've sat here and said some pretty critical things about this president, if any of us were there now, we would be working very hard to figure out what does he need to best make his way through these difficult decisions and what is the best way to get it to him. So the kind of greater than some of the parts point here is whatever tensions are there between the president and the intelligence community, frankly, I think the intelligence community sets that aside. You know, you don't get up in the morning and say, I'm really irritated with the president. You get up in the morning and say, how do I do my job in a way that helps him? Yeah. <laughs> is that right? I mean, I think oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I think we all kind of came into it. It's the White House you want to yeah. be informed so that when the president in that meeting, even though you haven't gotten what we classically get with the president, yeah. when he turns to other folks, they're reflecting. Can I make this worse? Okay. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> the, uh, it, 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 it's just not in the presentation, all right? Uh, and, and how does this president absorb new information? Um, you craft this. I mean, there, there's an epistemological challenge here. You craft the briefing to take the president from things he knows to things he does not yet know. And here I'm not talking about what you suggested earlier, phase one. This mm-hmm. is massive ignorance about, about international affairs. We'll work through that. We'll, we'll put bricks on that wall and, and, and build it up. But, but David, I, I'm, I'm concerned about what's the president's framework. All right? I, I think everyone we briefed, was more or less an American internationalist. Some with a little more emphasis on the pedal, some with less emphasis on the pedal. I don't know what President Trump inherently believes about this structure. We exchanged notes this morning about what we're going to talk about. Uh, CIA does threat analysis and plugs in there from time to time opportunity analysis. Other than threats, physical threats to, to, to America, what threats are the, would the president be concerned about, and what opportunities does he care about? 
because I don't yet know the president's broad mm -hmm. global framework. Mm -hmm. So I think beyond getting it right, getting it short, getting it to the Oval, there is this broader structure that needs to be communicated to the community. And we, you know, we may have taken a modest step forward yesterday mm -hmm. with, with some clarity with regard mm -hmm. to positions. But that's really important to the folks out at Langley in terms of what is it the president needs. And this is where I'm actually optimistic, because I think um, not only is the form of information getting better in a way that he's obviously uh, imbibing, but he's beginning to also trust the people around him in a way that he didn't in phases one and two of, mm -hmm. of John's framework. I think, you know, Mike Pompeo is his CIA director. He is seeing him daily. Mike Pompeo is bringing the experts from the agency to the table to inform and to fill the, the, the empty vessel, so to speak. And so I think that's actually very helpful because it then allows uh, not only a, the education of the president, but a shaping of the policy. And I think we've seen that. I think this is a president that seems very malleable. He doesn't seem to have a, a guiding philosophy on foreign policy. Uh, he's getting criticized for apparently sort of shifting from his campaign promises. I see that as positive, that he can, he can learn, uh, he's going to trust his people, and the intelligence community, frankly, is what they're good at. They figure out who their audience is, and they figure out how to, how to inform and influence. Uh, and I think that's, that's going to be to the good. You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. Today's show features a conversation about the relationship between the Trump White House and the intelligence community. If you like today's show, check out Richard Haas on A World in Disarray. President of the Council on Foreign Relations, Richard Haas, says the world needs an updated global operating system. He thinks the guidelines and institutions that have led the world since the Second World War are outdated. Threats like climate change and cybercrime pose new challenges we're unprepared to deal with. Find the episode by searching Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use. Now, here's the rest of today's discussion about President Trump's relationship with the U.S. intelligence community. Here's David Ignatius. The certainly what we've seen in the last two weeks is a president... Uh, to quote uh, Tom Donilon, comment uh, I put in the paper yesterday, who's had uh, whiplash-like <laughs> changes of position on on key issues. Syria, Russia, and China uh, are the most uh, obvious uh, examples. Um, I want to just uh, ask Juan a small uh, codicil yeah. on the counterterrorism issue. This is a president who uh, campaigned on the danger to America. Fear was a, a central part of, of, his, of his pitch. Uh, Counterterrorism briefers are conveying truly frightening information and its potential implications, but it's, it's a delicate process. Um, do you have any thoughts about how to inform the president without inflaming him in a way that would lead to outcomes that would put us more at risk? It's a great question. It's a great question because anyone who's dealt with uh, the CT world, the threat matrices that emerge 
uh, all of the threats that have to wash out but are incredibly horrifying uh, if imagined to sort of fruition? Um, you know, it's a really good question, David, because I think uh, you have to inform the president of what's out there, how an ISIS is evolving, uh, what some of their grand visions may be, what al-Qaeda is doing in adaptation. Uh, but to your point, you can't do it in a way that it is going to shape a worldview that is highly reactionary or um, oversteps where we want to go. And I think that's the role of, frankly, H.R. McMaster. It's the role of Tom Bossert, the Homeland Security Advisor, uh, to make sure that the information is being conveyed in a way that not only lets the president know kind of the scope of threats that the U.S. is worried about, but also helps them understand how we're mitigating uh, those threats. And I think that was often the, the conversations we would have in the Oval or in the sit room, which is, look, these are nightmare scenarios or nightmare cases, but um, these are the things that we're doing in concrete to mitigate the threats, uh, to make sure that they don't, don't come to fruition or to disrupt them. And if we need to take action to disrupt, here are the options. And I think, you know, doing that in a methodical way, um, demonstrating that, look, the counterterrorism community has evolved over time, it's very mature, there's something you can latch on to. You don't have to start anew. All of that, I think, is part of the education and maturation of the government. Uh, and I think that's, that's, that can be managed. Here's another. Juan's comment causes me to think of another breakpoint that we have to be prepared for. And that's the first time he's surprised. The first time that intelligence doesn't catch something. <laughs> And terrorism is a good, a good point. Uh, area where that can happen. Uh, you're almost never going to be a thousand percent on terrorism. I remember in the early days of the Obama administration when the underwear bomber almost succeeded in 2009. That was their first experience with something that the intelligence world did not pick up. And they went into a bit of a, uh, a panic about intelligence failure until they kind of got their bearings about how intelligence, that it isn't always right. It doesn't, it's mathematically certain that you'll miss something sooner or later. We haven't had that moment yet. And how he reacts if that happens is going to be another break point in this relationship. You've ratcheted that up, not, not from the emergent and urgent, and, but the, kind of the backdrop analysis. The, the president ran on a campaign of apocalyptic danger from terrorism, which, which, frankly, I don't think the intelligence community would have written it up that way. And so you saw in the first days of the administration the executive order rollout with regard to an apocalyptic danger from refugees, and we have no idea who these people are. No idea. Neither of which were true. And I don't think the order came from anybody in who we used to represent running down to the Oval saying, Mr. President, Mr. President, we've we got a problem here. That, that came out of, of the campaign and, and what was discussed during the campaign. So now the question becomes, in this most delicate area where no president can even envisage failure, mm -hmm. how, how do you scope the president's concern about that? Because I, I'll speak for myself, but I think these guys are going to agree. You are driven to the lower left-hand corner of the threat matrix, which is the one that's going to happen tonight because some t young fellow makes a bad decision at Dulles in the TSA line. And you, if you, if, if you let yourself, your agency, or the, your administration, they will be consumed by, by, by that part 
at the expense of a whole bunch of other things. So, so how do you elevate the discussion down there out of the urgent and into the important? The question, obviously, is, is, is whether the intelligence community should um, sort of uh, preview with the president the possibility of, of surprise, uh, of, of this kind of difficulty. One disturbing moment to me was after the uh, Yemen special operations raid where uh, Ryan Owens was killed, uh, the, the president's initial reaction was to say, this was recommended by the generals, the generals wanted to do it, they lost Ryan. Uh, it was sort of, it's their fault, uh, which I think goes to the point that each of you is implicitly making, that in CT issues, there, there'll be a t- temptation if something awful happens for the president to say, well, it's my fault, it was somebody else's fault. Is there any way you can, can preview that, knowing it's a Sometimes something like that's probably going to happen. One, what, yeah. what do you think? Well, a, a couple of comments. I, I think it's a great question. The Rose Garden uh, uh, press conference that he had with King Abdullah of Jordan was actually a really interesting moment in the context of Syria. Because it was the first time you had the <clears throat> president say, this is something that's happened on my watch. <clears throat> I'm responsible. Um, and I, I found that to be a really important moment of maturation for the president and the presidency. Um, and so I think at this point... You could have a, a president who sort of reverts back to campaign mode and points every which way if something goes wrong. But I think he realizes now he's the president, he's the commander-in-chief when it comes to security issues. Um, and I think what you have to consistently do is make sure he understands he's the decision-maker, right? And so he has to make decisions with respect to how far you're going to go in terms of preventative actions, what you're going to do operationally to disrupt uh, counterterrorism a- activities. And ultimately, you know, the buck stops in the Oval Office uh, with those decisions. And, and I think um, that may be the hardest uh, thing for a president to realize that, you know, they're making life and death decisions literally every day based on their policy calculus and their tactical decisions. So I think the more you condition the president to have to make those decisions, to understand he is the decision maker the more likely you're going to have success when something happens to say, you know, this is, this is our responsibility. What do we do? I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening to the show. You can find Aspen Ideas to Go in a growing number of places. Subscribe on iTunes, listen on NPR One, and find us on SiriusXM's Insight Channel. That's Channel 121. You can also find us on apps like Stitcher and Google Play. Now, back to today's discussion. Here's David Ignatius. One thing I think that's important about this sense that's emerged, especially in the last week, of the team... (laughs) Uh, the team with a strong SecDef uh, in General Mattis, a strong, increasingly strong Secretary of State in, in Tillerson, uh, somebody driving a good process uh, in H.R. McMaster, is that as, as the team bonds, the likelihood of blaming members of the team uh, as opposed to saying we're all in, in this together, right. I think, is... Yeah. Is, is a little bit less. Let me ask you about something that has, uh, has uh, bothered me uh, in terms of its future implications. Uh, it doesn't get a lot of discussion, but I think it goes to 
the, the, the Trump moment, if, if you will. And that is the argument that's been made uh, on the right and on the left, too, that President Trump, this man who was determined to, to bring the elites to, to, to account, uh, has been frustrated by the deep state. <laughs> it's a term that we're used to hearing in reference to Turkey or Egypt, but in the narrative that's out there in social media on the left and right, increasingly there is discussion of this uh, deep state that includes the intelligence community, my goodness, even the Aspen Institute probably, not, not to mention the Washington Post. Uh, and so uh, yeah, we're all in league. What's, what's, what's concerning about this is that uh, it's precisely the narrative that our adversaries would most want to uh, see promulgated because it's so divisive. It, it, it says to citizens, you know, you can't trust this, these elite institutions. Let me start with you, Mike. What does a, a sensible uh, person, former director of central intelligence, say and do about this increasingly uh, current idea that's out there? Yeah, it, it's hard for the folks in government to argue back, so maybe it's the folks out of government, formerly in government, who, who have to make the strongest argument. Frankly, my definition of the American deep state are veteran experts governed by the rule of law who are in the United States government, all right? And, and one of my great fears, David, is, is that and, and, and the trend lines are a bit positive now, that the president was going to govern with a small circle of family and friends, detached from these larger institutions, as John suggested, whose only interest in life is to make him a more, a, a more uh, successful president. So, so one hopes we, we get over that and we get the maturation, yeah. Yeah. you know, the inevitability of intelligence that the president recognizes that, that he depends uh, on these folks uh, for success. I think the, uh, I, well, personal opinion, and then I'll get to your, your operative question. The idea of a deep state is complete nonsense. And um, I put it in the category of sophomoric ideas that take hold when people can't explain what's going on around them. And I know something about sophomores. <laughs> uh, and I think it will fade as a footnote, you know, over time for the reasons that Mike just laid out as sensible people in the administration gain traction and become important to the president, uh, the idea of the deep state will just recede as um, time goes on and eventually be seen as an artifact of this early weird period when this extraordinarily unique president was maturing. It, it, let me give a footnote to the institution John and I were part of the CIA. In the last three presidential transitions, 2000, Nobody changed. Okay? President Bush kept George on. There were no changes. In 2008, you are looking at the only person at CIA who, was, who changed, and President Obama called my deputy, Steve Kapp, is saying, you can't go, Steve. You've got to stay and keep all those other guys on the staff, too. And now we've just had a transition yeah. in 2016 in, in which the director and the deputy director swapped out. Zero, one, two, period. Right, over a period of 17 years, everyone else are long-term intelligence professionals yeah. who serve Democrat and Republican administrations. 
I, I would joke, by the way, when I left government in 09, that I was the only member of the CT sort of governing <laughs> council, so to speak, that was, was gone. Everyone else was the same. Um, I do worry, though, a little bit, a little bit more than, than John expressed. I worry that the deep state, which connotes an anti-democratic, conspiratorial, power-grabbing uh, bureaucracy, that that gets conflated with what are legitimate checks and balances internal yep. to the government. I, I agree to, with to that. Mike's point, to Mike's point is right. That, that you have to, I mean, Jack Goldsmith from Harvard Law wrote a very good book called Power and Constraint. Uh, it was largely about the, the Bush administration, but he makes the argument that, look, there are inherent elements of the American system, the media, lawyers, internal bureaucracy, uh, diplomacy, all that constrain even the most imperial presidency. He wasn't claiming President Bush was imperial, but that, that was the point of the book. And the reality is that's the way the system is built. Um, and to the extent that we begin to um, undermine the credibility of what are legitimate checks and balances on power by labeling it deep state, because it does connote sort of some military intelligence coup that's uh, in, the, in the offing, um, that's really problematic. And it does, it does then equate sort of the American system to other systems that we consider to be illegitimate, that don't abide by democratic principles, that don't abide by transparent checks and balances. So I do think we've got to do our best from the outside, with the media, with, with any voice we can, to move away from that narrative because it is so potentially corrosive and cynical uh, that I think it does damage to the appropriateness of checks and balances. I think Juan has this exactly right. And if there were truly a deep state as portrayed by its detractors, the best refutation of it is we're here talking about this. <laughs> uh, and we have, you know, and, and, and the America right now is in the midst of a gigantic internal uh, conversation about all of these things, and we'll sort it out. There's no deep state. There's, uh, Juan has this exactly right. Thank you, John. <laughs> um, I, 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 without uh, disagreeing with, with Juan or, or John, I, I do want to just note that this uh, characterization of the CIA as part of a, an elite that uh, is a rogue elephant was the term. Uh, evidence is overwhelming that that was wrong, but it, it was believed by large segments yeah. of the American yeah. public. We, we are um, uh, just a democracy, you know, in our, in our bones. I, you know, our national flag really says, don't tread on me. And uh, that, that's, I think, uh, left and right, Republicans and Democrats share that. And I think there has been, uh, for many decades, a, a suspicion of the intelligence community as, as a threat to liberties. Uh, you know, this idea of black helicopters uh, is, you know, it's, it's become a laugh line. But there are a lot of people out there in America who, who have this feeling that, uh, these elite institutions do not serve them, but seek to control them. 
And I just want to note that because it's easy to caricature this and minimize the, the extent to which there's a problem. Yeah, uh, I, I don't disagree with that, but you're a spy novelist, David. And, <laughs> I have and, a, a black helicopter yeah, in no, my backyard. And he writes scripts, too. No, no. <laughs> Actually, he's a very good spy novelist. Yeah. I, I know foreign intelligence services who use his novels as, <laughs> as training. Well, but here's true. my point, uh, and that's the truth. Let's say buy more copies of this. <laughs> so John Le Carre uh, uh, has in T- Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, he has Bill Hayden say the following sentence. Uh, intelligence agencies are not rogue elephants. They are the only true expression of a nation's self-conscious. Think about that. I think if you really examine our intelligence agencies here, they very much mirror our democracy in many ways without disputing the perception that David has documented. There are no intelligence agencies anywhere in the world, anywhere, that experience quite the level of oversight that we experience with all of its flaws and all of us here could do a dissertation on how bad it can be. But our Congress gets more intelligence information unfiltered than any other legislature in the world that I'm aware of, to the point that we have to be careful not to share with our Congress intelligence information that other services give us because they don't with their own parliaments. So. I don't challenge the perception that's out there, but it's, I guess, where I would come out is we got to work against that because it's not really true, even though it's a deeply rooted perception, as David points out. Let me just two-finger this because I I think um, one thing that's interesting, and maybe part of the maturation we're seeing, again, time will tell, is an understanding of what foreign intelligence services are doing, and even non-state actors are doing from an intelligence perspective. And I think that's something that the president has to grapple with. It's obviously something that the, the agency and the NSA have to uh, you know, counter. Um, but the reality for American citizens today is to be less worried about the CIA, NSA, or some deep state trying to control them. I would be more worried about Russian organized criminals getting access to my bank account. And I'd be more worried about Chinese... Uh, government officials having our fingerprints, which they do, by the way. Um, and that is the new kind of world we live in. And I think, you know, part of the maturation is understanding that this is a much more complicated environment than simply what the CIA or NSA does or thinks. It's actually a global environment. And, and this is something, too, that uh, I think the three of us spend a lot of time doing, as you do, David, and Mike in particular. Uh, in writing your book, I think you said, my real effort here is to help people understand what this business is all about. Uh, A key background factor here, again, without challenging that perception, is that we're very young as as what I would call an intelligence nation. Okay, so the Chinese strategist Sun Tzu was writing about intelligence in very sophisticated ways in the sixth century BC. It's still a handbook on human. We've only been doing this at the national level, the way we do it now, since 1947. 
So the, the idea of intelligence fitting neatly into the American polity has is, is got a long way to go, and that's why it's important for intelligence leaders, those currently active and those privileged to be formers, to speak to the American public about what it really does and why it isn't working against them, <laughs> even though that perception may be out there. So, so that harkens to what I tried to say earlier about we rest a bit uneasily inside the American political culture for values we all we all share. Share one one impression, David. This is tactile, not not intellectual. All right, but, but I've been out and about making speeches. The paperback edition of the book is out, and, and so on. So so I'm, I'm out in public audiences. What I get back is not the argument. You people scare me. All right, the black helicopter. What I am now getting back. Is, is, is this texture, this ambient feeling of um, we need you truth-tellers to stand tall in the bunker in order to make sure too much doesn't fly off the rails with, with regard to an administration that I think we all agree is having a bit of a trouble finding its footing. And, and, and that, is a, that is a constitutional function that's performed by American espionage to, to be straightforward truth-tellers not unlike your guaranteed rights in the First Amendment. That said, there is a pendulum in American views yeah. on intelligence. My, uh, for, one of my former, my, my predecessors, a wonderful uh, man named General Vernon Walters, mm -hmm. uh, used to say, um, when the American public is scared, they can't get enough of us. <laughs> when, they're not, when they're not scared, they think we're immoral. <laughs> we could go on for another hour, but uh, we're, we're over our time. Uh, uh, great panel. I hope somebody at the White House was watching. Uh, please join me in thanking our panel. John McLaughlin is the former acting director of the CIA. Michael Hayden led the CIA and NSA, and Juan Zarate served as the former Deputy National Security Advisor for Combating Terrorism under George W. Bush. Washington Post Associate Editor and Columnist David Ignatius moderated the conversation. It was held by the Homeland Security Program at the Aspen Institute. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Follow the Aspen Institute year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Institute. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of our public programs. Thanks for joining me.